0: Book 4 part 2 of the histories by publius cornelius tacitus this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the histories by publius cornelius tacitus translated by alfred john church and william jackson brodridge book 4 january to november ad 70 Part 2. About the same time the messenger, dispatched by Civalis, came up with the cohorts of the Batavians and the Canifates, while by the orders of Vitellius they were advancing towards Rome. At once, inflated with pride and haughtiness, they demanded, by way of remuneration for their march, a donative, double pay, and an increase in the number of cavalry, things indeed which Vitellius had promised, but which they now asked, not with the thought of obtaining them, but as a pretext for mutiny. Flaccus, by his many concessions, had produced no other effect but to make them insist with more energy on what they knew he must refuse. Treating him with contempt, they made their way towards lower Germany, to join Civalis. Hordeonius assembled the tribunes and centurions, asked their opinions as to whether he should use coercion with those who refused obedience soon yielding to his natural timidity and to the alarm of his officers who were troubled by the suspicious temper of the auxiliaries and by the fact that the ranks of the legions had been recruited by a hurried conscription he resolved to confine his troops to the camp then repenting of his resolve and finding that the very men who had advised it now disapproved it he seemed bent on pursuing the enemy and wrote to Herennius Gallus legate of the first legion who was then holding bona that he was prevent the Batavians from crossing the Rhine, and that he would himself hang on their rear with his army. They might have been crushed if Hordionius, moving from one side, and Gallus from the other, had enclosed them between their armies. But Flaccus abandoned his purpose, and in other dispatches to Gallus, recommended him not to threaten the departing foe. Thence arose the suspicion that the war was being kindled by the consent of the legates, and that everything which had happened, or was apprehended, was due, not to the cowardice of the troops, or to the strength of the enemy, but to the treachery of the generals. When the Batavians were near the camp at Bona, they sent on before them delegates, commissioned to deliver to Herennius Gallus a message from the cohorts. It was to this effect, We have no quarrel with the Romans, for whom we have so often fought. Wearied with the protracted and fruitless service, we long for our native land and for rest. If no one oppose us, our march will be harmless, but if an armed force encounter us, we will make away with a sword. The soldiers prevailed upon the hesitating legate to risk the chances of a battle. Three thousand legionaries, some raw Belgian cohorts, and with them a mob of rustics and camp followers, cowardly, but bold of speech before the moment of danger rushed out of all the gates, thinking to surround the Batavians, who were inferior in number. But the enemy, being veteran troops, formed in columns, presenting on every side a dense array, with front, flanks, and rear secure. Thus they were able to break the thin line of our soldiers. The Belgians giving way, the legion was driven back, retreating in confusion on the entrenchments and the gates. It was there that the greatest slaughter took place the trenches were heaped with corpses. Nor was it only from the deadly blows of the enemy that they suffered. Many perished in the crush and by their own weapons. The victorious army, who avoided the Colonia Agripenensis, did not venture on any other hostile act during the remainder of their march, and excused the conflict at Bona, alleging that they had asked for peace, and that when it was refused they had but looked to their own safety. Givalis, who now, on the arrival of these veteran cohorts, was at the head of a complete army, but who was undecided in his plans, and still reflected on the power of Rome, made all who were with him swear allegiance to Vespasian, and sent envoys to the two legions, which, after their defeat in the previous engagement, had retreated into the old camp, advising them to accept the same allegiance. Their reply was, We do not follow the advice of traitors or enemies. Vitellius is our emperor, To him we will retain our fealty, and devote our swords to our last breath. Then let not a Batavian refugee affect to decide the destinies of Rome. Let him rather await the merited penalty of his guilt. When this reply was delivered to Civilis, he was furious with anger, and hurried the whole Batavian nation into open war. The Bructeri and Tancteri joined him, and messengers summoned all Germany to share in his plunder and his glory. To meet the threatened dangers of the gathering war, the legates of the legions, Minurius Lupercus and Numisius Rufus, strengthened their entrenchments and walls. The buildings, which during a long period of peace had grown up like a town near the camp, were destroyed, lest they might be useful to the enemy. Little care, however, was taken about the conveyance of supplies into the camp. These the generals allowed to be plundered, and so what might have long have sufficed for their necessities was wantonly wasted in a few days. Civilis, who occupied the center of the army with the elite of the Batavian troops, wishing to add a new terror to his demonstration, covered both banks of the Rhine with columns of his German allies, while his cavalry galloped about the plains. At the same time, the fleet was moved up the stream. Here were the standards of the veteran cohorts. There the images of wild beasts, brought out of the woods and sacred groves, under the various forms which each tribe is used to follow into battle, and these mingled emblems of civil and of foreign warfare utterly confounded the besieged. The extent of the entrenchment raised the hopes of the besiegers. Constructed for two legions, it was now held by not more than five thousand Roman soldiers. But there was with them a great number of camp followers, who had assembled there on the disturbance of peace, and who could be employed in the contest. Part of the camp occupied the gentle slope of a hill. To part was a level approach. But By this encampment, Augustus had thought the German tribes might be watched and checked. Never had he contemplated such a pitch of disaster, as that these tribes should themselves advance to attack our legions. Hence no labor was bestowed on the ground or on the defenses. Our valor and our arms seemed defense enough. The Batavians and the trans tribes took up their position. Each tribe by itself, to distinguish and so the better to display the valour of each, first annoying us by a distant volley, then, as they found that very many of their missiles fixed themselves harmlessly in the turrets and battlements of the walls, and that they themselves suffered from the stones showered down upon them, they fell on the entrenchments with a stout and furious rush, many placing their scaling ladders against the ramparts, and others mounting on a testudo formed by their comrades. Some were in the act of climbing over when they were thrust down by the swords of the enemy, and fell overwhelmed by a storm of javelins and stakes. Always very daring at first, and excessively elated by success, they now, in their eagerness for plunder, bore up against every reverse. They also ventured to use what to them was a novelty engines of war. They had themselves no skill in handling them, but the prisoners and deserters taught them to pile up timber in the shape of a bridge, under which they put wheels, and so propelled, some standing on the top and fighting as they would upon an earthwork, others concealing themselves within and undermining the walls. But the stones thrown by the catapults prostrated the ill-constructed fabric, and when they set themselves to prepare hurdles and mantlets, burning spears were thrown on them by the engines, fire being thus actually used against the assailants. At last, despairing of success by force, they changed their plans, and resolved to wait, for they were well aware that only a few days' provisions were in the camp, and that there were a great crowd of non-combatants, and they counted at the same time on the treachery which might follow on scarcity, on the wavering fidelity of the slaves, and on the chances of war. Meanwhile, Flaccus, who had heard this of the siege of the camp, and had sent into all parts of Gaul to collect auxiliaries, put under command of Dilius Vocala, Legate of the 18th Legion, some troops picked from the legions, with orders to hasten by forced marches upon the banks of the Rhine. Flaccus himself, who was weak in health and disliked by his troops, travelled with the fleet. The troops indeed complained in unmistakable language that their general had dispatched the Batavian cohorts from Gantiantum, had feigned ignorance of the plans of Caius, and was inviting the German tribes to join the league. This, they said had strengthened Vespasian no less than the exertions of Primus Antonius and Mucianus. Declared enmity and hostility may be openly repulsed, but treachery and fraud, work in darkness, and so cannot be avoided. Kivalis stands in arms against us, and arranges the order of his battle. Hordionius from his chamber, or his litter, gives such orders as may best serve the enemy. The swords of thousands of brave men are directed by one old man's sick caprice, How much better by slaying the traitor, and to set free our valor and our fortune from these evil auspices? The passions, already kindled by the language, which they thus held among themselves, were yet more inflamed by a dispatch from Vespasian, which Flaccus, finding that it could no longer be concealed, read before an assembly of the troops, sending the persons which had brought it in chains to Vitellius. With feelings somewhat appeased, they arrived at Bona, the winter camp of the first legion. The troops were there even more enraged against Hordionius, and laid on him the blame of the late disaster. They said that it was by his orders that they had offered battle to the Batavians, supposing that the legions from Monacitiacum were following them, that it was through his treachery that they had been slaughtered, no reinforcements coming up, that all these events were unknown to the other legions, and were not told to the emperor though the sudden outburst of treason might have been crushed by the prompt action of so many provinces. Hordionius read to the army copies of all the letters which he had sent about Gaul, begging for reinforcements, and established as a precedent a most disgraceful practice, namely, the handing over the dispatches to the standard-bearers of the legions, through whose means they were read to the soldiers sooner than by the generals. He then ordered one of the mutineers to be put in irons, more for the sake of asserting his authority than because any one man was in fault. The army was then moved from Bona to the Colonia agrippinensis where auxiliaries from Gaul continued to flow in, for at first that nation zealously supported the cause of Rome. Soon, indeed, as the Germans increased in power, many of the states took up arms against us, moved by the hopes of freedom, and could they once shake off the yoke even by the lust of empire the irritation of the legions still increased, nor had the imprisonment of a single soldier struck them with terror. This fellow, indeed, actually, charged the general with complicity. He had, he said, acted as a messenger between Kivilis and Flaccus, and because he might tell the truth he was now being crushed under a false charge. With wonderful firmness, Vocola ascended the tribunal, and ordered the man, who had been seized by the lictors, and was loudly remonstrating, to be led off to execution. All the best men acquiesced in the order, while the ill-affected were struck with terror. Then, as all with common consent demanded that Vocala should be their general, Hordionius handed over to him the supreme command. But there were many things to exasperate the already divided feelings of the soldiery. Pay and provisions were scanty. Gaul was rebelling against conscription and taxes, while the Rhine, owing to a drought unexampled in that climate, would hardly admit of navigation, and thus supplies were straitened. at the same time that outposts had to be established along the entire bank, to keep the Germans from fording the stream, the selfsame cause thus bringing about a smaller supply of grain, and a greater number of consumers. Among ignorant persons the very failure of the stream was regarded as a prodigy, as if the very rivers, the old defenses of the empire, were deserting us. What in peace would have seemed chance or nature was now spoken of as destiny and the anger of heaven. As the army entered Novesium, the sixteenth legion joined it. Herennius Gallus, its legate, was associated with vocala in the responsibilities of command. As they did not venture to advance upon the enemy, they constructed a camp at a place called Gelduba. Here the generals sought to give steadiness to the troops by such exercises as forming in the order of battle, constructing fortifications, making entrenchments, and whatever else might train them for war. In the hope that they might be fired to courage by the delights of plunder, Vocala led the army against the nearest villages of the Gugerni, who had accepted the alliance of Civalis. Some of the troops remained permanently with Herennius Gallus. One day it happened that at no great distance from the camp the Germans were endeavoring to drag off to their own bank a vessel laden with corn, which had run aground in the shallows. Gallus could not endure this, and sent a cohort to help. The number of the Germans also increased, as fresh troops continued to join both sides. A regular battle ensued. The Germans, besides inflicting great loss on our men, carried off the vessel. The vanquished troops, following what had become a regular practice, laid the blame not on their own cowardice, but on supposed treachery in the legate. Dragged out of his tent, his garments torn, and his person severely beaten, he was commanded to declare for what bribe, and with what accomplices he had betrayed the army. Their old hatred of Hordionius reappeared. He, they declared, was the instigator of the crime, Gallus his tool. At last, utterly terrified by their threats of instant death, the legate himself charged Hordionius with treachery. He was then put in irons, and only released on the arrival of Vocula, who, the next day, inflicted capital punishment on the ringleaders of the mutiny. Such wide extremities of license and of subordination were to be found in that army. The common soldiers were undoubtedly loyal to Vitellius, but all the most distinguished men were in favor of Vespasian. The result was an alternation of outbreaks and executions, and a strange mixture of obedience and frenzy which made it impossible to restrain the men whom it was yet possible to punish. Meanwhile, all Germany was raising the power of Kivilis by vast additions of strength, and the alliance was secured by hostages of the noblest rank. He directed that the territories of the Ubi'i and the Treveri should be ravaged by several tribes on which they bordered, and that another detachment should cross the river Mosa to threaten the Menapii, in the Morini, and the frontiers of Gaul. In both quarters plunder was collected, with peculiar hostility in the case of the Ubii, because this nation, being of German origin, had forsworn its native country, and assumed the Roman name of the Agripenenses. Their cohorts were cut up at the village of Marcodorum, where they lay with careless security, presuming on their distance from the river bank. The Ubi did not remain quiet made predatory excursions into Germany, escaping at first with impunity, though they were afterwards cut off. Throughout the whole of this war, they were more loyal than fortunate. Kivilus, grown more formidable now that the Ubii had been crushed, and elated by the successes of his operations, pressed on the siege of the legions, keeping a strict watch to prevent any secret intelligence of advancing succors from reaching them, He entrusted to the Batavians the care of the machines and the vast siege-works, and when the Transhenai tribes clamored for battle, he bade them go and cut through the ramparts, and, if repulsed, renew the struggle. Their numbers were superfluously large, and their loss was not felt. Even darkness did not terminate the struggle. Piling up logs of wood round the walls and lighting them, they sat feasting and rushed to the conflict as each grew heated with wine, with a useless daring. Their missiles were discharged without effect in the darkness, but to the Romans the ranks of the barbarians were plainly discernible, and they singled out with deliberate aim any one whose boldness or whose decorations made him conspicuous. Civalis saw this, and, extinguishing the fires, threw the confusion of darkness over the attack. Then ensued a scene of discordant clamor, of accident and uncertainty where no one could see how to aim, or to avoid a blow. Wherever a shout was heard, they could see how to aim, they wheeled round, and strained hand and foot. Valor was of no avail, accident disturbed every plan, and the bravest frequently were struck down by the missiles of the coward. The Germans fought with inconsiderate fury. Our men, more alive to the danger, threw, but not at random, stakes shod with iron and heavy stones. Where the noises of the assailants were heard, or where the ladders placed against the walls brought the enemy within reach of their hands, they pushed them back with their shields, and followed them with their javelins. Many, who had struggled on to the walls, they stabbed with their short swords. After a night thus spent, day revealed a new method of attack. The Batavians had raised a tower two stories high, which they had brought up the Praetorian gate of the camp, where the ground was the most level but our men pushed forward strong poles, battering it with beams, broke it down, causing great destruction among the combatants on the top. The enemy were attacked in their confusion by a sudden and successful sally. All this time many engines were constructed by the legionaries, who were superior to the enemy in experience and skill. Peculiar consternation was caused by a machine which, being poised in the air over the heads of the enemy, suddenly descended, and carried up one or more of them past the faces of their friends, and then, by a shifting of the weight, projected them within the limits of the camp. Civilus, giving up all hope of a successful assault, again sat down to blockade the camp at his leisure, and undermine the fidelity of the legions by the promises of his emissaries. All these events in Germany took place before the battle of Cremona, the result of which was announced in a dispatch from Antonius accompanied by Caecina's proclamation. Alpinius Montanus, prefect of a cohort in the vanquished army, was on the spot, and acknowledged the fate of his party. Various were the emotions thus excited. The Gallic auxiliaries, who felt neither affection nor hatred towards either party, and who served without attachment, at once, at the insistence of their prefects, deserted Vitellius. The veteran soldiers hesitated. Nevertheless, when Hordionius administered the oath, under a strong pressure from their tribunes, they pronounced the words, which their looks and their temper belied, and while they adopted every other expression, they hesitated at the name of Vespasian, passing it over with a slight murmur, and not, unfrequently, in absolute silence. After this, certain letters from Antonius to Civilus were read in full assembly, and provoked the suspicions of the soldiery as they seemed to be addressed to a partisan of the cause, and to be unfriendly to the army of Germany. Soon the news reached the camp of Gauduba, and the same language and the same acts were repeated. Montanus was sent with a message to Kivillus, bidding him to desist from hostilities, and not to seek to conceal the designs of an enemy by fighting under false colors, and telling him that, if he had been attempting to assist Vespasian, his purpose had been fully accomplished. Civalus at first replied in artful language, but soon perceiving that Montanus was a man of singularly high spirit, and was himself disposed for change, he began with lamenting the perils through which he had struggled for five and twenty years in the camps of Rome. "'It is,' he said, "'a noble and savage clamor of this army, a clamor which demanded my execution, and for which by the law of nations I demand vengeance.' You, Trevari, and others, enslaved creatures, what reward do you expect for the blood which you have shed so often? What but a hateful service, perpetual tribute, the rod, the axe, and the passions of a ruling race. See how I, the prefect of a single cohort, with the Batavians and the Canafates, a mere fraction of Gaul, have destroyed their vast but useless camps, or oppressing them with a closed blockade of famine, and the sword. In a word, either freedom will follow on our efforts, or, if we are vanquished, we shall but be what we were before. Having thus fired the man's ambition, Kivalis dismissed him, but bade him carry back a milder answer. He returned, pretending to have failed in his mission, but not revealing the other facts. These, indeed, soon came to light. Civilis, retaining a part of his forces, sent the veteran cohorts and the bravest of his German troops against Volcola and his army, under the command of Julius Maximus and Claudius Victor, his sister's son. On their march they plundered the winter camp of a body of horse stationed at Ascibergium, and they fell on Vocula's camp so unexpectedly that he could neither harangue his army nor even get it into line. All that he could do in the confusion was to order the veteran troops to strengthen the center the auxiliaries were dispersed in every part of the field. The cavalry charged, but received by the orderly array of the enemy, fled to their own lines. What ensued was a massacre rather than a battle. The Nervian infantry, from panic or from treachery, exposed the flank of our army. Thus the attack fell upon the legions, who had lost their standards and were being cut down within the entrenchments, when the fortune of the day was suddenly changed by a reinforcement of fresh troops, Some Vascon infantry, levied by Galba, which had by this time been sent for, heard the noise of the combatants as they approached the camp, attacked the rear of the preoccupied enemy, and spread a panic more than proportionate to their numbers, some believing that all the troops from Novesium, others that all from Ogantiacum had come up. This delusion restored the courage of the Romans, and, in relying on the strength of others, they recovered their own. All the bravest of the Batavians of the infantry at least, fell, but the cavalry escaped with the standards and with the prisoners whom they had secured in the early part of the engagement. Of the slain on that day the greater number belonged to our army, but to its less effective part. The Germans lost the flower of their force. The two generals were equally blameworthy. They deserved defeat. They did not make the most of success. Had Kivilis given battle in greater force, he could not have been outflanked by so small a number of cohorts, and he might have destroyed the camp after once forcing an entrance. As for Vocala, he did not reconnoiter the advancing enemy, and consequently he was vanquished as soon as he left the camp, and then, mistrusting his victory, he fruitlessly wasted several days before marching against the enemy, though, had he at once resolved to drive them back, and to follow up his success, he might, by one and the same movement, have raised the siege of the legions. Meanwhile, Civilus had tried to work on the feelings of the besieged, by representing that, with the Romans, all was lost, and that victory had been declared for his own troops. The standards and colors were carried around the ramparts, and the prisoners also were displayed. One of them, with noble daring, declared the real truth in a loud voice, and, as he was cut down on the spot by the Germans, all the more confidence was felt in his information at the same time it was becoming evident from the devastation of the country and from the flames of burning houses that the victorious army was approaching vukala issued orders that the standard should be planted within sight of the camp and should be surrounded with a ditch and a rampart where his men might deposit their knapsacks and so fight without encumbrance on this the general was assailed by a clamorous demand for instant battle They had now grown used to threaten. Without even taking time to form into line, disordered and weary as they were, they commenced the action. Civilus was on the field, trusting quite as much to the faults of his adversaries as to the valor of his own troops. With the Romans the fortune of the day varied, and the most violently mutinous showed themselves cowards. But some, remembering their recent victory, stood their ground, and struck fiercely at the foe now were encouraging each other and their neighbors, and now, while they reformed their lines, imploring the besieged not to lose the opportunity. These latter, who saw everything from the walls, sallied out from the gate. It so happened that Civilus was thrown to the ground by the fall of his horse. A report that he had been either wounded or slain, gained belief throughout both armies, and spread incredible panic among his own troops, and gave as great encouragement to their opponents. But Vulcala, leaving the flying foe, began to strengthen the rampart and the towers of the camp, as if another siege was imminent. He had misused success so often that he was rightly suspected of a preference for war. Nothing distressed our troops so much as the scarcity of supplies. The baggage of the legions was therefore sent to Novasium, with a crowd of non-combatants to fetch corn from that place over land, for the enemy commanded the river. The march of the first body was accomplished in security, as Civilis had not yet recovered. But when he heard that officers of the commissariat had been again sent to Novesium, and that the infantry, detached as an escort, were advancing just as it were in a time of profound peace, with but few soldiers round the standards, the arms stowed away in the wagons, and all wandering about at their pleasure, he attacked them in regular form, having first sent on troops to occupy the bridges and defiles in the road." The battle extended over a long line of march, lasting with varying success till night parted the combatants. The infantry pushed on to Gelduba, while the camp remained in the same state as before, garrisoned by such troops as had been left in it. There could be no doubt what peril a convoy, heavily laden and panic-stricken, would have to encounter in attempting to return. Vocula added to his own force a thousand picked men from the 5th and 15th legion, besieged in the old camp, a body of troops undisciplined and ill-affected to their officers. But more than that, number specified came forward, and openly protested, as they marched, that they would not endure any longer the hardships of famine and the treachery of the legates. On the other hand, those who had stayed behind complained that they were being left to their fate by this withdrawal of a part of the legions. A twofold mutiny was the result, some calling on vocala to come back, while the others refused to return to the camp. Meanwhile, Civilis blockaded the old camp. Vocala retired first to Gelduba, afterwards to Novesium. Civilis took possession of Gelduba, and not long after was victorious in a cavalry engagement near Novesium. But reverses and successes seemed equally to kindle in the troops the one desire of murdering their officers. The legions, increased in number by the arrival of the men of the fifth and fifteenth, demanded a donative, for they had discovered that some money had been spent by Vitellius. After a short delay, Hordionius gave the donative in the name of Vespasian. This, more than anything else, fostered the mutinous spirit. The men, abandoning themselves to debauchery and revelry and all the license of nightly gatherings, reviled their old grudge against Hordionius. Without a single legate or tribune venturing to check them, for the darkness seems to have taken from them all sense of shame, they dragged him out of his bed and killed him. The same fate was intended for Vocala, but he assumed the dress of a slave, and escaped unrecognized in the darkness. When their fury had subsided, and their alarm returned, they sent centurions with dispatches to the various states of Gaul, imploring help in money and troops. End of Book 4, Part 2